0: Genesis 41 starting in verse 37 and uh, these these are the words of God. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Let me just pause there for a second. Uh, what happened in the beginning of this chapter was uh, Pharaoh had had uh, a couple of dreams about some cows that came out of the Nile and about some uh, grain... Uh, stocks of grain, and uh, Joseph, the patriarch in Genesis, interpreted the, ge- the, the dreams for Pharaoh, saying, you're going to have seven years of abundance, and then you're going to have seven years of famine, and you need a smart guy who's going to help you uh, save up grain so that when the famine comes, you can uh, take care of it, and so that's where we're picking up, and it says, this proposal that Joseph made of how to deal with this, this Famine that was revealed to Pharaoh in the dreams. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said uh, to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall uh, order themselves as you command. Only as regards uh, the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said uh, to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath paneah and he uh, gave him in marriage to Asenath, the uh, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up the grain in a great abundance, uh, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, uh, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of uh, the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for uh, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use your word uh, to stir in us a longing for your kingdom. And most of all, to stir in us a longing for the King. And uh, we ask that you would ascend uh, your spirit now uh, to be our teacher, that you'd be our aid, that uh, the words of my mouth and the, and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So um, we're, what's interesting about this passage that I just read to you, is um, that it's a story about a government, right? And it's a government where Joseph becomes the prime minister, and he's basically restructuring the bureaucracy of Egypt, and he's leading um, an international uh, relief effort where he's consolidating the resources of the mightiest nation in the world— uh, so that to provide relief to a potentially de- for a potentially devastating famine that's coming. And the reason why I think that uh, that's interesting that I just, you know we're opening the Bible and it's a story about a government is because I think for most of us as modern people, when we think about what what are we going to learn about when we read the Bible? We think we're going to learn about spirituality. And for us, you know people living in in Bellingham, spirituality primarily is a private thing that I do, uh, I, I do in my spare time. Um, it's, it's about how I get in touch with who I really am. It's about self-actualizing. It's about me having a fulfilling life. And, um, and so we read something like this, um, and you say, well, what is this, what is a passage about the government in Egypt uh, in, you know, 3,000 years ago, or no, 4,000 years ago, uh, you know, have to do with my personal fulfillment? And um, the great thing about the Bible is that the Bible does speak to all those things about my personal life, how do I deal with my anxiety, how do I become who God made me to be, and how do I live a fulfilling life. It actually addresses all those things. It says if you want to become who you're made to be, you need to know God, you need to have a relationship with him, you need to follow him, read his word, and he, he defines who you are. He, can, he has resources to deal with your anxiety. But it talks about so much more than that as well. It talks about a coming kingdom where God is drawing all the nations of the earth to himself to worship him. It's a much bigger project than just about, you know, Nate, you know, because we read the Bible, and what does it mean for Nate to believe in Jesus? Well, on the one hand, it does mean that Jesus is my friend, and he listens to me, and he hears my sorrows and my troubles. He does that, but it also, for me to be a Christian, means that Nate believes that Jesus is the son of God, the true king of the earth who has uh, been sent by God and is, uh, is the only savior for all peoples. This is a massive project that he is bringing a kingdom. And so there's this sense where there's kind of a micro gospel, small good news, you know, micro gospel about my personal life, and then there's also this macro gospel that I am being brought into being a part of God's kingdom, um, which is uh, a giant... Um, Uh, Work that God is doing in the whole earth and the whole creation. And what this passage is doing is it's talking about Joseph leading this international relief effort. Um, You see that uh, closing verse there, verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth is a massive relief effort. And actually what this is, this little story is a little preview in the Old Testament. It's a little picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus is uh, going to do 2,000 years later when he comes as the true king, as the greater Joseph. And he's going to gather all the nations of the earth and he's going to come and he's going to feed them bread. Like you know, he's, like he's going to feed us bread today and he's doing that with people all over, the, all over the nation. It's a preview, it's a picture of the coming kingdom. And um, and one of the things that I just think is vital for our church is to have an understanding that um, both we're coming to this church uh, to find solace and to find balm for our, our hurting and broken souls. We find that here. But also, we're being saved into being participants in the expansion and the building of God's kingdom, which Jesus is doing right now and we're a part of. And so... Um, what I want to do is, uh, this morning, look at this passage and highlight three qualities of God's kingdom so that we understand this kingdom that we've been a part of that is distinct from all the other kingdoms of the world. It is not like any other kingdom. And in particular, I want to highlight three things. That First of all, the kingdom co- uh, only comes through a culture. The kingdom only comes through a culture. Second, that the kingdom only comes through humility And third, the kingdom only comes through the spirit-filled king. The kingdom only comes through the spirit-filled king. So those are the three things we're going to look at and uh, the nature of God's kingdom and that we've uh, become a part of it. So the first is this. The kingdom only comes through a culture. Now, the reason why uh, that's important is that for many... uh, Postmodern kind of people, you know, kind of the the way that uh, people in, in Bellingham, kind of the West Coast, are very uh, postmodern people. The idea that God is building an international kingdom is filled with all kinds of problems, because uh, the average the average person will say, "Okay, let me get this straight. You Christians." look at all the diverse people groups, all the nations, uh, all the languages, all the different cultures, all the different histories, all the different religions that are so diverse around the world. And you think you have this magic bullet this Jesus, Jesus is this magic bullet, and he, he is the universal solution for all these diverse people groups, and you want to take this one solution and universally apply it to everyone, and they're going to say, listen, whenever you try to do that, just take one size fits all and, and, and impose it on all people groups of the world, it is always devastating, it is always disastrous, it always does violence to people, and uh, you know... Kind of the classic example of that is in the 19th century colonialism, you know, so England and other uh, Western European countries were becoming very wealthy, they were having, making scientific progress uh, they, through industrialization. Uh, there was all kinds of wealth. And they, were, and, and they were becoming very sophisticated in their education, their politics, their economics. And they said, listen, why don't we just spread this to the whole world? We're, we're being, our life is so prosperous here. And we could just bring the world into this utopia. And so they begin exporting their culture. And they go into places like Africa and they just start making these nations all over Africa and they start sticking together different ethnic groups that don't belong together and trying to take uh, uh, an English culture, English politics, English religion, English education, everything and just impose it on this people and it simply doesn't work. You can't do that to people. God's world doesn't work that way. And it's been devastating for many of those peoples. Of course, we've seen that in our own, our own land where uh, the native indigenous peoples of America that we have come and tried to impose our culture on them and it's absolutely been devastating to them. And so uh, what the postmodern person says, isn't that exactly what you Christians want to do? You have this one religion and you want to go impose it on everyone and, it, and it's going uh, to dehumanize them. So there's a question for us, how do we answer that? Is that really what we want to do we want to take Western white religion and we want to impose it on all the diverse peoples of, of the world well um, the reason that we know that uh, that those were not biblical principles behind colonialization and behind Western expansion is that the kingdom of God never comes through Christians imposing a foreign culture on another people the kingdom of God never comes through Christians imposing uh, their culture on a foreign people's. And the proof of that is actually right in this passage. We see a proof of it right in this passage because here is uh, Joseph, God's blessing bearer. He has the promises of God and he's going into Egypt, this foreign land, and he's going to bring God's blessing and rule. He's going to save this nation. God is going to be kind to this nation and they're going to save them through Joseph. And yet, um, he's going to bring it into an Egyptian culture. And you look at this, and what does Joseph do? Does Joseph take his Israelite culture and come into Egypt and begin to impose it on them? No. He does the opposite. He actually begins to adopt their culture. He becomes a part of their culture. And you see this, um, that uh, you know, Pharaoh has these dreams, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams for him. And so it says then in verse 42, then Pharaoh took his signet ring, from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed them in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride, uh, in, his, uh, ride in, in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah An Egyptian name, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over um, the land of Egypt. Now, what's happening here? This is, uh, Joseph is going through um, a, an Egyptian litany for the installation. He's becoming the vizier, or the, uh, the prime minister of Egypt. And he is going through this, this uh, kind of installation process. You know, he's getting new clothes. He's getting this gold chain. He's getting this signet ring. He's becoming, a, he's becoming a part of Egyptian culture. And then he's given this name that's an Egyptian name by Pharaoh. And then he marries an Egyptian. He's becoming a part of their culture. Now you... I should pause there because you might say, now, is this a good thing? To, you know, he's marrying an Egyptian woman? Sure, you know, she's the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An. And I think that we can look at this passage and actually there's a lot of indication that some of these Egyptians are converting. Because what happens with Pharaoh is Pharaoh uh, hears the dreams and God is speaking to him through, through Joseph. And what does Pharaoh do? First of all, he believes Joseph. And then he obeys Joseph. And when you respond to the word of God with faith and obedience, you're a Christian. So I think there's some indication that some of these Egyptians, especially if the Pharaoh has become a believer in God, that other people high up in this, uh, in this government and in this, uh, this culture have become Christians. And, and uh, Joseph has found one. And actually one of the indications of that is, is Joseph only marries one woman. You know, there's all kinds of polygamy happening in these pagan nations. He's a one-woman man. And he's found this Egyptian woman who's, uh, who's come to love God, and he's married her. And, um, and the point is this, that the kingdom of God comes in Egypt through Joseph, not by Joseph rejecting Egyptian culture, but by working, being God's agent from within it. He becomes God's agent from inside of Egyptian culture. And this is the only way that the kingdom comes is subversively from inside a culture. Um, And that we become a part of a culture, become a part of the culture around us, and we're God's light within it. And, you know, kind of a classic example of this uh, was that uh, Protestant missionaries went to China in the 19th century and they were there for, you know, a century, over a century, I think, and had very little fruit. You know, these are white Westerners in China trying to preach the gospel, very hard to build. Uh, build churches. And then in 1953, they were expelled um, by the government, by by the communist government. They said, no more, no more missionaries. And it turns out that was actually the best thing that could have happened to the church because they didn't understand uh, Chinese culture. They couldn't immerse themselves and they were trying to impose this foreign culture, bring it into China. And there was no fruit. God didn't bless that. That's not how the kingdom works. And so as soon as they left, all these Chinese leaders in the church began to own the mission. And they were a part of the culture. They were inside of the culture. And as soon as that happened, the kingdom just exploded. And, and the gospel went forth and it's grown. It's still growing to this day. It's growing uh, like crazy. It's growing a lot more in China than it is here. And it's because the, 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 the kingdom comes from within a culture. And um, I put a... Uh, uh, and, and let me just say this, actually. You know, Jesus, Jesus talks about this in some of his parables about the kingdom. Where he says that the kingdom is like leaven that you put in, a, in a, you know, the dough of bread and the leaven slowly spreads until the whole lump is uh, leavened. Or he says, the kingdom is like a mustard seed that you plant in a garden and it slowly grows up into be, uh, to become this great tree where all the birds of the air are coming. And that's how uh, the kingdom grows in a place like Bellingham for us. God plants us not to be a separate culture from Bellingham, but to be inside of Bellingham and Whatcom County and to grow and for the kingdom to slowly grow subversively as a part of Bellingham. And I, I put a quote for you on page three of your bulletin. This is this is a fairly thick quote, but it's, it's one of my favorite. And if you've just taken Christ Church 101, I, I read this quote in Christ Church 101. It's Leslie Newbigin, who I actually quoted last week. Um, he was a missionary in, in India, Anglican missionary in India for 50 years. And um, talked a lot about, about uh, the kingdom of God in, in, in among the nations. This is what he says. To speak of contextualization in this connection means that each man has to seek to understand the way in which Christ is leading his own people towards the fullness of the new man. See, his own people is his own culture. He needs to understand his own culture and to try to follow and help others to follow. This means that his relation to his culture is a double one. There is both an identification and a separation. A man should love and care for his own people, his own culture, his own traditions. A man who has lost that love is less than human. But it has to be a critical and discriminating love. His participation in the new humanity through Christ makes him aware of the fact that his own culture cannot be absolutized. It has to grow and change in the direction that the gospel points out. Every Christian in his relation to his own culture must live in this tension. The tension that is always involved in true leadership. For a leader must both be one with those whom he leads and also be more and see more than they. We have to be one with Bellingham and see beyond Bellingham and see where is the gospel leading a place like Bellingham. And this is exactly what Joseph did. He was lived in obedience and trust to God, and yet he became a part of Egyptian culture. And so what that means is that we must simultaneously, as God's people, in a in a Place, an unbelieving place like like Bellingham or Whatcom County have a uh, simultaneously identify with our culture and separate w- from our culture. We both identify with our culture and separate from our culture. And let me, let me just talk about each of those just briefly. First of all, we're called to identify with our culture. What does that look like for us? As we spread out from here and go into our various neighborhoods and jobs, what does it look like for us to be a part of Bellingham culture? And I think one of the things is that we have many things in Bellingham that you like to be a part of or that are natural for you to be a part of. You know, you have uh, coworkers. You know, your coworkers are going out to get dinner after work. And maybe then none of them are Christians. You have this choice of, am I going to go hang out with some non-Christians who are having dinner? Or do I only hang out with people I know at church and only Christians? That's an opportunity for me to be, that's part of our cultural life, you know. After work, you go get some food. And, uh, you know, or you have a neighborhood association. You live in a neighborhood, being a part of the neighborhood association. That's part of the culture that as Christians, I can be a part of that and be a Christian, absolutely. Or, you know, I, I like playing sports. Do I form a Christian sports team and just go hang out with Christians and play sports in the Christian League or do I join a City League or maybe get a couple other Christians and we go join a City League team with other non-Christians so that we're a part of the culture around us. Actually, just this week, I was talking to uh, Steve Peshek. Uh, some of you know Steve. He's a marathon runner. Actually, he ran an ultra marathon. And if, if you don't know what that is, it's 50 miles. And uh, this particular one he was telling me about, there's one at Lake Padden. is 20 laps around Lake Padden, which, man, you have that... Lake Memorized after uh, 20 times Lake Patton. But what he was saying was, uh, you know, he just loves to run. And it turns out, though, when he goes to run, if you run an ultra marathon, you're not running fast. I mean, you're kind of like, you know, <laughs> and it's like 11 hours going around Lake Patton. And, you know, you got these other people you're running with, you need to kill some time. And get, he just says, you know what, I'll just start talking to someone for two hours and they'll just open their life to me. And I get to share with them, this is what God's done in my life. This is my life. And, and what's he doing? He's in the culture around us. He didn't, he didn't do a Christian marathon somewhere. He just did a Bellingham ultra marathon. And that gave him the opportunity to be a light within the culture and so to identify and say, I don't want to separate, okay? But there is an aspect in which we can over-identify with our culture and look just the same as the rest of the culture around us. And, um, um, and we see in this passage that Joseph, even though he was becoming a part of Egyptian culture, Pharaoh looked at him and said, "In that man is the Spirit of God. There's something different about that man, and I want him to be the prime minister, even though he was within that, in that culture. And so that's it. We, just, we both identify with our culture, but we also separate from our culture. And you'll notice this. Look at verse 50 again. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Bore them to him. Uh, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, uh, for God has made me fruitful in the land of, of affliction. And so, um, as I said before, we see a sense of Joseph's faithfulness. You know, he only has one wife. But also, look at what he's doing with his children. He has these children. And even though he got an Egyptian name, he gave his children Hebrew names. These are Hebrew names. And both of their names are about God's promise and God's faithfulness. And so he has this understanding, okay, I know we're in Egypt. I know that our our people are up in the promised land and we're far from them. We have no contact with them. But we are going to hold on to the promises of God. That's going to be your identity. I'm going to place that on my children. I'm going to train my children to love God and to know God, even though they're living in this foreign culture that, that doesn't know God, doesn't believe in God and um this is their first identity and so it is it is it is both a separateness that both separate and identifying it's this tension that uh newbigin is talking about and what happens is that christians tend to usually fall off the horse in one way or the other you know on the one hand they tend uh, to separate christians can tend to separate from their culture too much you know where we only hang out with Christians. Um, we, maybe we only listen to Christian music uh, we only read a book written by a Christian and um, uh, everything we're involved in is, is attached to the church or a, a, you know, a church sponsored event and um, what we become is this isolated community a kind of a ghetto that's, that's isolated from the culture around us it's an over separation but also we can identify too much with our culture where churches become afraid to say what the Bible says you know, teach clearly. This is what God's word says. This is what I believe. I'm a Christian. I reject these kinds of things. I embrace God. I think I'm a sinner. I think Jesus is the savior of the world. I think he's, you know, I believe all these things. And we don't want to say those things. We don't want to offend any of those things. We need, but, but what the Bible calls us to is to live in this tension with our culture. And um, how the kingdom comes is through God's people both embracing and challenging their culture at the same time. And um, let me just, you know, to come back to the postmodernist question, are we going to do violence to other nations? We want to impose our religion on other, say everyone needs to believe in Jesus. Everyone needs to bow their knee to Jesus. Are um, Are we dehumanizing people? One of the things that we see about the gospel is that the gospel, like no other religion, has the ability to transcend cultures. So that you look at all the other major religions of the world, they have a cultural center. Like, uh, Buddhism has never had a cultural center other than, you know, kind of China and uh, East Asia. Hinduism has never had a cultural center other than India. Um, Islam has never had a cultural center other than the Middle East. It's stayed in one culture, but you look at the gospel. Where's the cultural center been for the gospel? It started in Palestine moved up into kind of Western, you know, Asia Minor, and uh, then it moved into North Africa, then it moved into Europe, then it moved into the British Isles, and then it moved to North America. Now, probably 85% of the Christians of the world live in the majority world, in Africa, uh, South America, and uh, in China, and in Asia. You know, Korea is 40% Christian. The cultural center has shifted, that the gospel was not attached to some culture. And actually what happens is that the gospel goes into a culture and renews and revitalizes cultures. It doesn't decimate them. It doesn't crush them and impose them with a foreign culture, but it gives them new life. It breathes new life into them. And you might say, well, how does that work? You know, how can the gospel change a culture without just destroying it? And you know, I've shared this with you that you know, I became a Christian when I was 16. And um, one of the things that my parents said to me, was, you know, you're you're a radically different person. Completely different person. But you're still the same old (laughs) mate. You're somehow radically different and the same old mate at the same time. It's somehow the gospel, my person, the gospel deeply challenged and yet honored my person at the same time. And the gospel does that to a culture. It goes into a culture and simultaneously challenges the idols and honors that culture at the same time. And the reason why the gospel can do this is because at the center of the gospel, what is the main belief of the gospel? Is that God did not impose a new world order on humanity. God became a man and entered into human culture. He became a part of our culture in a certain time, in a certain place, and he immersed himself in it. And through that, the the kingdom grew and has, has transformed the world. And so this leads... Because of Jesus came to serve, he humbled himself in enter culture. This leads to the second. This is my first point. Whew. All right? Other points won't be that long. had a lot to say about that one. But the first, So the first thing about the kingdom is that the kingdom only comes through a culture, subversively from within. But second, the kingdom only comes through humility. And this is the, one of the distinct marks of the kingdom of God that the Bible teaches us about is that uh, the king, Jesus, the son of God, who was equal in power and glory, humbled himself into the form of a servant. And um, he died a, a humiliating death on the cross for his enemies. That's, a, that's the king of the kingdom. He, he humbled himself and he was humiliated. So humility is at the heart of the kingdom of God. And we see that humility uh, marked God's rule in Egypt in a couple ways. First of all, you see that Pharaoh gives up his power. The way that God's rule came into Egypt was Pharaoh giving up his power. Um, now, you think of Pharaoh. He's the king of the mightiest kingdom in the world, and he's got all kinds of people who are trying to be, you know, usurpers who are trying to grab his power. Maybe going to assassinate him. Get, uh, you know, he knows his. There's people around him who are corrupt. So to trust people. As Pharaoh, you're not going to be likely to give up your power to people. And yet, this is uh, verse 39. This is how God, or this is how Pharaoh responds to the word of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command." And then he gives him his signet ring. So he basically, Pharaoh says to Joseph, "You have." My authority, I'm investing you. Any decision you make is basically that I've made that decision. It's an incredible act of trust. And he's letting go of his power. And he's saying, listen, I don't know how to handle this. There's a a famine coming. There's brokenness in, in my kingdom. And I don't know how to resolve it. And I need to let go of my power and give it to you. And let me just tell you, the letting go of power is how the kingdom of God comes. We need to remember that as Christians. Because there is a, you know, there's a temptation. We have a lot of Christians in our nation, and as we look at our nation, that that in many ways, in many ways, our nation is becoming more Christian. There's the, the, the you know, cons, uh, kind of Bible-believing evangelical Christians are growing, and yet it's also becoming more hostile to Christianity, and it's becoming more polarized. And so there's a temptation for us as we look at our culture and and our culture is embracing things that we want to reject. We want to say if we could just get into a position of power we could make this culture Christian again. And, and that's the allure, honestly, of, 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 of the political system, is if we could get that kind of power, we could, make this, we could make this culture the way we want it to be. The kingdom never comes that way. The kingdom comes when God's people are actually marginalized, and they let go of their power. And let me just say, by the way, caveat to that. Uh, am I saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics? You shouldn't be thinking about how I should view politics as a Christian, no. Christians, we should be involved in politics and and having our faith shaping our politics, absolutely. But for us to think that this is how God's kingdom comes, how his rule comes, how our culture is redeemed is through through power, we're deceiving ourselves. Pharaoh shows us that through humbling ourselves and letting go of power, uh, the kingdom comes subversively. But also, we see the humility of the kingdom in that not only Pharaoh gives up his power, but Joseph serves the poor. What Joseph's project here is, is that he is serving the poor. Look at verse 56 again. When the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And what we see about Joseph's spiritual life you know, when we imagine a spiritual life, what we primarily think in terms of is, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm praying, I'm on a walk with God, and all those things are vital to our spiritual life. And yet, for here, how is Joseph serving God? He's an administrator. He's got good administrative gifts. He's good at, you know, organizing people, training leaders, getting storehouses built. He's a, you know, kind of businessman. He's a leader. He's a visionary. He's using all these kind of worldly, natural gifts for the good of those who are hurting. He's giving his gifts away for the good of other people, for serving others, and um, for a massive relief effort. You know, he's a visionary. He sets goals. And um, and what we see uh, in, in verse 46 also, it said that Joseph went out into the, uh, from the presence of Pharaoh and he went through all the land. He walked through and he looked at all the people who were hungry and, and saw the situations. He saw their lives. He built relationships. He talked to people. And, um, Joseph was using his natural gifts as a servant leader in, in the community. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like. God's people using their gifts for the good of others, for the, for the, for the powerless. And actually, uh, Tim Keller, who's been kind of a, uh, I don't know him, but he's a mentor in the sense, you know, that I, I, I've, I've been influenced by him a lot. And um, he's a pastor in Manhattan. And, and Keller talks about how churches tend to major on one thing that they're really good at. You know, some churches have really good doctrine. They understand the Bible really well. Some churches are really good at evangelism. They're always inviting people in, sharing the gospel with people who don't, you know, seeing lots of conversions. Some churches um, just do community really well. You come in and they you know, people have small groups together and there's this sense of family and they love one another and they serve one another. Some churches go out and they, uh, and they care, care for the poor and for the needy. They give of their time and their resources to care for those who are in need. And what Keller says is that when the Spirit of God really works, when the Spirit of God is really building the kingdom, all of these things come together, and they serve and help one another. And a church never says, oh, well, we're better because we have better doctrine, or we're better because we serve the poor. We say uh, the Spirit of God moves all these things, and people with different kinds of gifts come together, and God is building a body, and they serve one another. And some people are better at doctrine, and the people who are serving the poor say, yes, we need good doctrine. And the people who are good at doctrine say, yes, we need to care for the poor, and we need community, and we need people who are warm and, you know, Uh, make people feel loved. And we need all of these things that are working together. That's what the Spirit of God does to bring his people together. And that's when there's a sense when revival is really beginning to happen. But I'll tell you what happens. Um, You know, we think of that and we're like, wow, this is the kingdom. You know, Joseph is doing a massive relief effort. He saves the world. (laughs) You know, he saves, there's a devastating famine. And you know, I I went to a a conference a couple years ago um, that was about Kind of social justice and caring for the poor and uh, it was a lot of a lot of young people you know 25 ish single and it was probably 5,000 people and um there's this song that came on but you know there was a time of worship before the speakers came on and it was this um chanting of we will save the world or something we can ch- oh we can change the world i'm sorry that's what it was we can ch- not save the world we can change the world and you know on the one hand, it was it was really inspiring. You say, "Wow, these are all these young people who really want to give their life to serve God and to help those who are in need to go to the nations to address poverty and yet i 'm sitting there, I have five kids, and um you know i'm I got a family I'm trying to care for I got a, a little church that i'm pastoring, and I'm like, "Wow, change the world <laughs> i don't have energy for that that's <laughs> i don 't know when i'm going to find time to change the world like." Man, this is a burden, and how am I ever going to do that? And, you know, there's this aspect when, when we talk about the kingdom, God's big project. I mean, some of you feel that, and you're like, wow, we got to change the world. we got to cure poverty. we got to um, uh, rescue the world. I don't, I don't have that in me. How am I going to do that? And um, the good news is that it's not us who changes the world. And one of the things that's so important as we read a passage like this, you know, whenever you read the Bible and you read a story, you have to find yourself in the story, right? Because we're trying to apply, this, is a, this story was written 3,500 years ago by Moses in the desert, and we're like, what does that have to do with us in Bellingham? We have to somehow find ourselves in the story, right? So the question is, where are we in this story? And this leads to the third point about the kingdom. First, so the, the, the kingdom only comes through, through a culture. Second, the kingdom only comes through humility, Through giving up power and serving the needy and the the poor and those who have nothing and the powerless. But third, the kingdom only comes through the spirit-filled king. The the kingdom only comes through the spirit-filled king. And, um, uh, you know, if we look at the task of all the problems of the world and think, feel overwhelmed, I can't change the world. The fact is, Pharaoh felt that way also. And you get that sense where he finds out in his dream that his nation is about to have a devastating famine. The first thing he says in verse 38 is, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? He's immediately saying, I can't do this. I need help. (laughs) This is a project even as Pharaoh, who, you know, if he did convert, before he converted, he thought he was God. And he's like, I can't do this. And um, Pharaoh realizes that the coming of the kingdom can only come through God's chosen one on whom is the spirit of God. And when the chosen one comes, he can do this relief effort. And, um, and as we look at this passage, what we see in Joseph, Joseph is a type, he is a preview of God's true chosen one, true, true spirit-filled king who will draw the nations. Because what happens to, to, to Joseph, right? He's in the pit and Pharaoh raises him up to sit at his right hand. Jesus was in the pit, and God raised him to sit at God the Father's right hand. And here's a Joseph organizing people in all the cities. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is in all the cities of the world, in every nation, organizing people just like us, making storehouses. And he's bringing people to feed them all bread, drawing all the nations to himself. And so as we read this story, we say, who am I in this story? The thing we have to realize is I'm not Joseph. Jesus is Joseph. Who we are is we were all those starving nations that came and got bread, and we had nothing. We couldn't provide for ourselves, and we found that the greater Joseph opened his storehouses to us, and he fed us, and he welcomed us in. And this is how Jesus builds his kingdoms. He brings all of us hungry. Our souls are hungry, and Jesus feeds our souls and gives us new life and welcomes us into his family. We sit at his table, and then when we go out, and we see the powerless, we see the lonely, we see the hungry, we say, that's me. That was me. And Jesus, uh, Jesus welcomed me, and he loved me. And our hearts towards those who are hurting and lonely and, and, uh, and needy can only be drawn towards them because Jesus had welcomed us and embraced us. And so uh, this is how uh, the kingdom is built is that uh, Jesus, the greater Joseph, um, draws the nations to himself and he loves them. And when he loves them, they're forever changed. And so uh, this is the role for us as the kingdom, is to be those nations that came to Jesus and, uh, and then to have our lives transformed, our hearts transformed, that our eyes would be open to the building of his kingdom and that we would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that uh, you are building a, a kingdom and that you have, uh, according to your own purposes, called us, each one of us here, to be a part of that kingdom and share in its goodness and in its abundance. And as you have welcomed us so freely, would you make us into a welcoming people that our hearts would be warmed and, um, and uh, compassionate uh, to the poor, to the lonely, to the weak because we are all those things and you showed compassion to us. We pray that you would use this church to build your kingdom. And where, I pray for each person here where you send them when we leave here um, that they would be, uh, both uh, embrace uh, the culture around them and yet be a challenge, that they would be a light and that people would see them and say the spirit of God is upon them. Uh, Show us that grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.